the thing that I always found so exciting about entrepreneurship was this freedom to create, you know, that you can go out there and see something that you want to create, solve a problem that you think is important to solve, and then have full freedom to figure out how to solve it. And if I was a builder, which I am, I would want to work on startup projects that I think are cool. I would want to stack, you know, multiple streams of income and feel really like free in that, knowing that I could always remove one if I want to, or I can change them, or I can get a full-time job if I want something more stable and keep a couple things on the side. It's just like a much more, what people, some people are calling kind of a portfolio career or being the CEO of themselves. It's a lot more empowering. Welcome to Deep Dives. My name is Rid, and this is where we go deep with the best designers so that you can learn from their journey and apply it to your own career. Today's guest is Steph Golick, who is an early design leader at the self-driving car startup Cruise. But two years ago, she actually left to launch her own startup called Huddle. So today we're talking all about how designers can take that leap to launch the next side project, or maybe even raise a round of venture funding like Steph. If you're interested in entrepreneurship, or maybe you just wanna get better at selling your ideas, you're gonna love this episode. I'll let Steph take it away by explaining why she believes designers are uniquely positioned to make excellent founders. So what I've observed in designers um, is that they naturally possess a couple things that are just table stakes, great things to have at your disposal as a founder. The first few skills that I think are really advantageous that designers have are really like the hard skills, primarily just what I would call like the time from vision in your head, idea to reality is way shorter. So you just have less of a game of telephone. You'll see this inside of companies all the time, even really small startups where the founder has a really clear vision for the thing and then they have to figure out a way to translate it to another person so that they can go out and try to figure out how to design it or build it or, or make that thing real enough to go get the funding behind it or go sell that customer on it. And that game of translation is slow and it just dilutes the idea. Um, so I think that's like the really core hard skill that designers have. And then the other things are just like kind of you know, what I think designers take for granted sometimes that they have, which are just, they have great taste. <laughs> and taste is actually one of the most rare things in early stage companies that you'll find. Um, actually having a good lens on how your audience will see the thing. Will they gravitate towards it? Will it kind of captivate them or will they find it cool or whatever the goal is? Um, actually having a grasp on how to create that through taste um, is is incredibly valuable. And then like the last kind of things I think people forget about sometimes with designers that's really, really important as a founder is sort of like the soft stuff, the soft skills. Um, so I think designers are natural negotiators where especially designers that have worked inside of big organizations probably don't realize how often they're negotiating trade-offs or getting buy-in on, on an idea. Um, and then as part of that are also natural storytellers, like really enrolling someone in the idea so that their idea gets built inside of a larger organization. Um, and really the last one is, is the soft skill of just empathy, like being human centric, which we talk about in design all the time. Um, and is sort of, again, like table stakes for design is like thinking through the user's lens and thinking about the person. 
Um, but as a company builder, that's incredibly valuable. If you're naturally just used to thinking through that lens, you're more likely to actually build a company and build a product that people actually like, love, and even like go tell people about. Um, so those are, those are the big ones. Yeah, it makes sense. I like the idea of eliminating this idea of playing telephone. It reminds me way earlier in my career, one of the little projects I was working on was essentially working with startup founders and then taking their idea and just making like a quick little clickable Flinto prototype that they could then use for their pitch deck. And it makes me think of just like how necessary design was in that process at the very, very early stages and eliminating that extra person and just being able to conceptualize and execute and tell that story in the early days makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that that what you just described and that value that you were able to provide at those early stages, um, I think we used to being a designer inside of, you know, bigger tech companies, we used to the rally cry used to be like, give us a seat at the table. Like, we just want to be part of making decisions. And I think the tables have been turning, and now the most coveted startup hire on the planet is the founding designer for that exact example that you just stated, right? Like, there's so many early problems and use cases that you really need to be able to make something real and available for someone to grab onto. Um, so I think that that kind of, like, trajectory of wanting a seat at the table, okay, now we're, like, a really coveted seat at the table, and then the next kind of evolution of that is really why we're here today talking about this, which I'm really excited about and I know you're really excited about, is that like now we're seeing more and more designers sort of be ambitious even beyond that and say, yeah, I, I have a seat at the table. Actually, I want to create my own table. <laughs> it's my own company. I'm going to decide who gets to be involved now. Um, and, it, and it really does all come from that value that design is able to provide, them tapping more into you know, that value and how they can use it. And I think the proliferation of all the tools and things that are at your disposal to really like even expand the amount of things that you can do today. We've talked a lot about the attributes that make designers effective founders. What are some of the main skill gaps that you see that a lot of designers have to invest in in order to successfully make that jump and be someone who is building their own company? I think it really depends on the designer. Um, I've I've seen I've seen some designers really lean into certain parts of who they are that they hadn't tapped into before and are great at it. An example is marketing. You know, um, not typically part of the usual design's role. It might be for some designers something that they would need to either learn or learn how to hire for or find the right partner for. While there are some designers that actually, once they kind of open up that avenue, are amazing marketers. The most typical kind of gaps, and definitely like for me personally, the gaps that I've found, um, is really around like some of the brass tacks uh, business parts, particularly if, you, if you're selling something that requires actually a bit of sales. <laughs> uh, meaning it's not just like pure product-led growth or, you know, you don't just pick up on something viral, which is very rare, by the way. Uh, you might actually have to do some hand hands-on selling. And those are the parts where I think um, it depends on the designer, but that can be a, that can be a gap. As well as like, you know, how do you set up your business operationally? How do you run your finances? 
um, your taxes. Like there's like, you know, all these kind of nuts and bolts of business building that I think, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs coming into starting a company don't know, uh, but can be particularly like, I don't like, like designers can sometimes uh, even be more like avoidant of those things. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, is what I've is what I've seen and observed in myself too. Um, so I think it, it is really important to find a couple collaborators and whether those are end up being co-founders in what you're doing or just purely you know collaborators. Um, finding those gaps in areas is what's really important, and that's one of the main kind of topics that we we cover towards the end of my course is is really just like how do you actually really start to create a, a company that's balanced around the skill sets that you have. I'd like to talk a little bit about your background and maybe drilling in specifically to your time at Cruise. I'm wondering what about your past experience looking backwards do you think has equipped you to become a successful founder? Mm. The actual experience that prepared me the most for being a founder is my childhood. I grew up in a very entrepreneurial household. Um, my my dad is an entrepreneur, um, but more so me, my brother, and my sister were all encouraged to start companies like throughout childhood, just for a little, any, any problem that we saw and we were like, oh, why doesn't that exist? I studied architecture and the dream I always had in my head was starting an architecture firm. And I realized, oh, you know, at a certain point, I realized I didn't actually like architecture that much. I just wanted to start a firm because I wanted to start a company because um, I wanted to start something new and build my own business. In the world of startups, I worked inside of some agencies and studios helping early stage founders and really early stage companies get to market um, with design and product support. I helped them design their pitch decks. So I got to like see a lot of different stuff and I got to see so many things that didn't work. Um, so many different ideas that didn't work, but really like I started to actually even, even get a sense about what kind of founders were really the ones that were going to figure it out. <laughs> um, and yeah, I, I ended up bumping into a project through that, that I ended up joining this startup full time. It was a tiny mapping company in New York. Um, it was building some really, really cool tech. And I, you know, I studied architecture and urban planning. So I'm like, I'm like a map geek. Uh, so I joined there and that was really like my like first like startup, like, you know, really figuring it out um, from inside a startup perspective. Um, and I think my biggest learning from being there was you have to actually really figure out the selling piece. So we built like amazing technology and we never fully figured out the selling piece or I, I don't feel like we really figured it out to the point that we could have really grown the thing. Um, and so my big kind of like my nugget of, of knowledge from MapFit was like, if you really want to like have a big impact and, and serve a lot of people, you do need to learn how to sell. Um, and then my time at Cruise, I think I've learned actually more about myself and the fact that I didn't want to work at a big company. Everyone at Cruise was actually awesome. And we grew the design team like, I don't know, four or five X while I was there. It was a really interesting experience of growing and scaling a, a design organization. Um, but it also was for me like a big kind of like knock on the door of like, this is, you know, you're not exactly in the right place. Uh, you're, you're at too big of a company. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I totally get that. 
you mentioned the selling piece. What are some of the ways since having that realization that you've invested in your own skill set and improved the way that you approach selling or just the way that you're able to uh, get buy-in outside of your own organization? The, the two selling parts that I've invested in and learned about in growing Huddle has been one on the selling to fundraise side. Um, so really selling the vision in order to get investor buy-in. Um, I led our entire fundraising process from, from pre-seed to seed. I'm a more introverted person. And what I found in having to sell investors was there's a way to do it that feels authentic, but you do have to go out and actually talk about what you're doing, why you're excited about it, find your like authentic kind of truth of why you're doing what you're doing and learn how to express it and express it over and over and over again. Um, and really use your, your networks. And if you don't have one, which I didn't have, there's just like, there's some grassroots strategies and things that I learned along the way that help, that allow you to kind of tap into an organic network and actually meet people and go out and continue to sell your idea. Um, on the selling to customers piece, I think my biggest learning is just that it's an area you need to invest in. Um, I, I think I learned a lot about selling through the investor experience that I carry into the customer experience. Um, really pitch them on like painting the picture of what this experience is and what what's going to look like on the other on the other side of it. I think that particular area, the biggest learning was you need to find your people that can really support you in that area. If it's something that's important to your business, um, it's not something to be sort of avoided or shied away from. It's like a really core important part of building a real business is learning how to sell it. And that's how you actually make money. Can we double click on the fundraising piece? Because I'm sure a lot of people listening don't have the ability to just manifest a warm intro to a VC or some kind of an angel. And maybe they are in a similar place where they're kind of starting from zero. It feels a little bit grassroots. What were some of those first steps that you took and how do you recommend other people get momentum on the fundraising piece? I did not have a natural network. I worked inside of, you know, a few different tech companies, had some contacts, none of which were investors, really. I knew a couple people that were potential angel investors, and that's about it. Um, what I did is those couple of people that I knew that could be angel investors, I don't know, maybe I set up calls with them immediately. And I took every call with every possible angel that I knew, and I went into the conversation with the goal in mind to get them to root for me and root for my company and get them to see my vision for it and get them excited about it. And if that also meant that they had some capital and were ready to put it behind it, great. And if they didn't, if they were still excited about it, it always led to something else interesting. That was my like early, early tactic. It's just talk to people that I knew and I could get them excited. The next thing I did is I tried to expand further than that. And I did it through cold DMs on Twitter. I just went and found anyone that I thought was even like, could be like, literally they just wrote angel investor on their, on their bio or had posted about something. And I would just send them a note and be like, Hey, like 
I, I think that you find this really, really interesting. I'm a big fan of yours or like I really enjoyed your work or that article you wrote or whatever. I hand wrote every message and I would just try to get them on a meeting and get them on a 30 minute call. And the tactic there was exactly the same. Like, I just want this person rooting for me. And if they are, then everything else becomes easy. And that's how I built my network. Um, you know, I met a couple people through cold DMs that ended up introing me to five other people. And literally there's like a visual web in my head of these like maybe five or six people that I connected with early on that literally led to the entire tree of huddle investors and huddle conversations um, that ended up raising our, our seed round. I have the exact same experience, so it's cool to hear you say that, where yeah. I moved to Boulder, knew nobody, and was trying to raise a seed round. Mm -hmm. And I like your point about not necessarily feeling like you have to just reach out directly to the angel and find the person that's going to write you a check, but being a little bit patient and finding people that can make that warm intro and are like one layer removed that can be your champion, that is like, I mean, I think that in almost every scenario that is the right step yeah. especially when you don't have a network and same thing for me where i had like my web and i actually had a like a notion document and i had little <laughs> bullet points of like this person knows this person this person knows this person and i was gonna i was trying to work my way up and another like little piece of um or something that worked well for me was googling the city that i lived in and then like angel group and a lot of times there's some old janky website of like a local collection of angels and you can try to find one person in there that can get you like a warm intro into that. And I ended up having a decent chunk of my own seed round way back in the day coming from uh, just finding local angel groups like that. That's, that's very interesting because that is another tactic that I did. I did not do the way that you did it, but one of the early kind of gold mines of sorts came through a local angel group in Miami called Miami Angels. Um, and yeah, I think that lo going local is kind of like underrated. I It's cool that you did that in Boulder too, because I a big part of how I went about fundraising was, you know, I, I moved to Miami. I'm from Miami. I moved back home during like the first month of COVID. And so I was building Huddle here, but I was like kind of underground because it was COVID and, you know. Um, but then like everyone started coming to Miami and like that big kind of wave of Twitter Miami thing happened. And I kind of just, I wasn't very consciously doing it, but I rode the wave, <laughs> meaning like, oh, everyone's coming to Miami's cool now. Okay, well, we're a Miami startup. If you want to invest in Miami, <laughs> come over here. So... I started going to Miami groups and digital groups and ended up finding Miami Angels and then went through through that route um, as well. In terms of finding those people that are really rooting for you, someone who's in Boulder, loves Boulder, and is excited that there's a founder in Boulder building this cool startup, that starts to create an, an extra layer of, oh, I really want this person to win. That's the fuel of the whole thing. Yeah, I love that point. Let's go one level deeper on the fundraising topic before we transition and imagine that 
you're talking to some kind of an aspiring entrepreneur and they're preparing some kind of a deck or presentation and they're meeting with a potential angel for coffee tomorrow morning. What is a practical strategy that they can use to take their pitch to the next level? I think that sometimes when we go into pitching, we try to say all the things and you end up with something that it's really hard to follow and it's hard to remember what the core of the thing is. Um, I'm a huge believer and have been proven in this process over and over again that simple is always better. If you're about to go into a fresh meeting and you're thinking about how can I really make this stick, um, I would take out a notepad and I would write down the two to three things that you actually believe are the most important things about what you're doing. And it's not what you think they are going to find the most important. It's what you find the most important. And, you know, I even advise some people that I've been talking to to really even think back on the origin story of why you started it. Why did you stay up all night and like build that thing and get so excited about this thing? It's that energy that you have, or and especially that you had when you're thinking about why you started it, is the energy that needs to be translated to this, this person that you're speaking with. Um, people make um, logical decisions for emotional reasons. And so the emotion that you translate in your excitement and your energy toward the thing goes a long way. And then, yeah, I think boiling it down to the two to three things and making sure that in your pitch, those two to three things are like coming through really strongly and you can literally just even repeat them. <laughs> so Steph, your background is largely in mapping, transportation, architecture. So I'm kind of curious, what is your answer for your energy and like the underlying why behind Huddle? And maybe you can share a little bit about that process leading up to it. And maybe even like, at what point did you know that you were ready to take the leap and start a new company? Huddle, I think ended up being more about like my personal journey into like who I am and why, where I'm at in my career and why did I land here? Um, and it really does kind of come back to that childhood experience of being around entrepreneurship, catching that bug, feeling the energy of it, and also the freedom of it. The thing that I always found so exciting about entrepreneurship was this freedom to create, you know, that you can go out there and see something that you want to create, solve a problem that you think is important to solve, and then have full freedom to figure out how to solve it. And if I was a builder, which I am, I would want to work on startup projects that I think are cool. I would want to stack, you know, multiple streams of income and feel really like free in that, knowing that I could always remove one if I want to, or I can change them, or I can get a full-time job if I want something more stable and keep a couple things on the side. It's just like a much more, what people, some people are calling kind of a portfolio career or being the CEO of themselves. It's a lot more empowering. And that's, I think that's a lot of that energy of why we built Huddle that way and solve that problem was from my desire to actually live that way. And so it was kind of more of like a meta self-explorative origin story than some of the other things I've worked on that felt much more like just delving into like an interest area of mine. 
I think it's important for listeners to also know that this isn't your first startup. Uh, you were actually co-founder of a company called Multi all the way back in 2016. So it's been five years in between these two origin stories. I'd like to know what are some of the main things that you've learned during that period and how is it impacting the way that you're approaching Huddle? Yeah, so Multi was the first company that I started. I started it right out of college. Um, the way that it got started was kind of funny and organic. I had an idea for this app. I submitted it into an app competition called NYC Big Apps. I don't know if it's still around. And I ended up meeting, meeting a developer and he had a similar idea. And so we we just started like tinkering on this thing together and ended up putting it in the app store, getting real users and a lot of engagement around it. And that was like my first, it was my, my first startup. It was also like my first product design user experience experience. There was really two things that I took away. One was I never fully, fully committed to multi. I always, you know, I was working inside of these startup studios and agencies, uh, helping other startups. And so I always kind of like had a foot in both places. And I would be spending like all of my free time and like really devoting a ton of energy and time to multi, but never like my full, full attention. And, um, and so that was a really big, now knowing what it actually takes to actually get a big idea off the ground and actually really execute on it to its full potential. I see exactly why multi didn't reach the potential that I hoped that it would. Um, instead of reaching that potential, it would kind of just come under and then we would pivot. And so we did a lot of pivoting. We tried a lot of different things. We originally launched Multi as an iOS app that was basically aggregating all of the different apps you could use at a given place in your neighborhood. So instead of having to look at like one delivery app, another delivery app, another delivery app, another delivery app for that like pizza place that you know is like four blocks away, you could just find the pizza place and you would see, oh, it's on these four delivery apps and I could just like order delivery right then and there. Really great utility use case. Um, but we didn't have a business model yet and we were kind of like trying to figure things out. We ended up pivoting more towards the business side and then we ended up pivoting more towards the data side because we had all this really interesting data about all these places and all these different apps and things that they were on. And so we started packaging that up and trying to sell like this really rich place data to other app developers, basically. And so we tried a bunch of different things, but I think the like core reality of it was any of those things could have worked if we or I speak personally was really all in on figuring it out. Um, you know, I think pivoting is important but it can also be a symptom of, you know, either the idea isn't aligned or more likely you're just not, you're not putting enough in to get enough out. Something I'd love to learn a little bit more about is what it was like doing the design in the early design, in the early days for Multi, because you didn't really have this design background. You were kind of figuring it out as you go. You don't really have this like PM over your shoulder. You don't have this person that's handing you all of these user research studies. What was that like and how did it grow you as a designer? Honestly, it was a lot of flailing around. Um, I didn't have great peers either because I was just starting out in user experience design. Like I had just, you know, I'd been in architecture before that. I didn't really have 
um, a ton of peers to, to get feedback from. Um, I was spending a lot of time on Dribble, And I think what I learned, so luckily my co-founder who's a developer was also a really product-minded guy. And so we did bounce ideas a lot and he would come a lot from the lens of, you know, both uh, functionality and, and kind of like from that developer lens and also from like a product thinking lens as well. So I think we both kind of like had a good, I, you know, I think there was a good back and forth in terms of thinking about the simplest functional thing and coming back to like why the product is there, keeping it really, really core. Um, I think that process was really like extremely iterative and very, um, very positive for me um, because it, it got me to already get used to thinking like a developer and thinking like a product person and thinking about not just the design and how it looks on Dribble, but also how is it going to get built? Because I was like hand in hand, you know, working with my developer co-founder to figure out how to build it a great craft through that process. Uh, I think I got the lens of how do we build simply, how do we design simply, um, and and with like good sense about it. Um, and so I think I honed in a lot of product skills and probably less on the UI side. It's funny because the reason I asked is I have like a very similar background where I learned design out of necessity as someone who wanted to build a company, not because I woke up one day and said, I want to be a designer. And I remember like all of these very specific moments, like Googling how to export an SVG from Sketch or <laughs> Illustrator or whatever. Like what is a design system and trying to figure out why the heck do my designs look so different than what is ultimately getting shipped and what are the different things that I'm not doing well? And mm. yeah, I kind of agree. Like the, lack of formal training led to maybe a, a winding growth path as a designer, but you're also learning so fast because you're just thrown into the fire having to kind of do everything. And I also appreciate the fact that as someone who was kind of responsible for like one, selling the product and designing the product, it, it strengthened that muscle that connects the two where you're really forced to tell a story around everything that you are doing in design. Absolutely. Um, it's one of the things that I tell. So I have a lot of friends from architecture and just people that I know in all different career paths that are interested in getting into user experience design or getting into getting into product design. And it's, it's one of the first things that I, I say is try to actually design or build something that you want to create in the world and go through that process. Boot camps are great. Boot camps are very important. Um, but in terms of thinking about like just redesigning an existing app that's out there or things like that, which a lot of people do because they, they want to create a portfolio of case studies, totally get that. My, my experience and what I would advise is if you can go through that process of actually creating and putting something out there, you'll learn so much more about how to actually create something that people want than trying to redesign a UI. Um, the craft and the UI piece is really important, but I found that the number one way to actually improve your UI or craft is go join a great design team. You'll have twice a week crits where you'll get 
all the feedback from amazing designers. You'll level yourself up. If that's your path and you really want to like hone in on your craft and your UI specifically, like, you know, your, your skills as a designer from that lens, I highly advise joining a design team. I think a lot of people listening might have some idea, but they don't yet have that confidence level to actually take the jump. What are some of the ways that you de-risked Huddle in the early days? So I started Huddle with my co-founder during the pandemic while I was still in a full-time job. And the way that we went about it is we built Huddle as a Slack group. (laughs) So we had this idea for a marketplace where there was designers and builders on one side and there were founders on the other side. And somehow the two of them meet each other and work on stuff together. And Huddle is just sort of like the space that's like getting them all in one space and making it pretty easy for them to find each other. Um, That was the concept. And instead of going out and building a platform, we just built the supply side first. So we just built a space for the designers and builders that we knew. And again, we even started small with that. We didn't go out and try to market. We actually just went with our own networks and their extended networks. So pulled in designers and developers and product people that we knew, told them to invite their friends, all good, and put them all in a Slack group. And then I put up a Webflow page that was just like, come here and get a pop-up team of designers and builders. And I put it on Product Hunt. (laughs) That's all I did. Uh, And I think, I mean, Product Hunt is a a wonderful tool. Like, it's, it's a really great free marketing tool, totally advise, um, especially if your audience is like huddle audience, which is startup people. Um, that's all we really did. We put it on product hunt. Um, I put a little bit of effort around really like, you know, creating a little bit of a moment around that product hunt launch by getting as many advocates, uploading it, all that kind of thing. And we did not have to pay for marketing since then. Um, and that was the proof to me that this thing was like, people really wanted this. Uh, And so there's different ways to measure that kind of like product market fit thing. But for me, it was like a very clear feeling. And that was the validation. I just thought, let's just try things. (laughs) And as we're trying things, I'm getting more and more confident in this thing that we're building. And for me, that was the validation I needed to leave my job. Um, I did at the same time also start fundraising. So before I even officially left my job, I started just having conversations with investors, started that process that we just talked about of, you know, asking for advice, starting to talk to angels, starting to send some DMs and just see if there was like an interest building up there or something that's worth pursuing from that lens. And once I got that kind of box checked, Okay, products, people want it, check. Like, fundable, investable, maybe this is something I could actually do full-time and, like, pay myself, check. Like, okay, cool, I'm good. What about for someone listening who, maybe they're working full-time, they have the entrepreneurial itch, they want to start something, but they don't have that one idea that's kind of keeping them up at night like you did with Huddle. What advice do you have for them to get some momentum towards starting something? So the transparent answer is that Huddle was not my one idea either. I'm one of those people that like once a month buys a domain name and like, (laughs) 
and like thinks up a thing and writes it down. If you have that entrepreneurial itch, you're probably going to feel it about a few different ideas and it's hard to know which is the right one or, you know, where to pursue things. And I mean, the only thing I'll say is it's all about taking those steps. So when maybe step one with an idea for me is exploring it enough to like, whatever, buy a domain name or think about how it might look or come to life or something like that. But then it has to go one step beyond that, at least, right? It has to like, we start, we have to start thinking about like, okay, how would I actually think about launching this thing or rolling it out or getting my first users, like really tactical stuff. And if I start to get excited about those pieces and I'm like, oh, there's a way that you could do this that, you know, that step isn't that hard. Okay, and then if that step works, like that next step isn't that hard either. I could just take that first step and see if that works. So I don't think that there's like a perfect kind of way, and I think it's different for everybody, but I do think that thinking about it in like really tactical steps, not like I'm going to go design the logo and create this whole brand around this thing that doesn't exist yet, which is very tempting, and I've definitely done that before, but really kind of changing the lens to think about how would I actually make this thing real and and validate it in a way that would actually mean something to me and help me decide whether I want to pursue this? Likely, it having a cool brand is not the thing that's going to help you decide whether to do it or not. You know you're going to make it a cool brand, you know? Like, that's what I have to tell myself all the time <laughs> if I have an idea. It's like, oh, but that would be such a cool logo. And it's like, who cares? Whatever idea you put out there, because you're a great designer, it's going to have great design. That's awesome. The things that you need to figure out are, is this an idea that either is something you can make money with? Is it something that you think could be big? And actually, you know, you could go out and fundraise and actually really like build a big company around. Or is it something else like kind of figuring out what you want to test or see what it could be and then taking some little steps towards that is really, I think, the only way to go about it. Um, there may be other people out there that will say, no, you know, you got to just go with your gut and if it's the right idea, you got to make the leap and, and that's it. That has just not been my experience. Um, I don't think you have to operate in that way, especially if it's your first startup and you're not sure. I think it's, 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 a very logical thing to think about those first couple steps and getting the right amount of validation before you, you know, leave your full-time job. Um, the only other alternative, or sorry, there's probably many other alternatives, but one other alternative is if you have a lot of ideas and you're also a really talented designer, you could be like Red here and you could go freelance if you want to, to fill in any gaps income-wise. I don't know if you do this, Red. Sorry, I'm calling you out. Let's say you're a talented designer and you have a bunch of ideas and you want to experiment with. You're not sure which is the right one. You can kind of go a more multipreneur or part-time entrepreneur route in, in route to figuring out which idea is the best idea or the idea that you think is most exciting to pursue. And it might be multiple ideas. The more that I'm seeing, you know, obviously there's like AI in the mix here, but there's also like tons of tooling and tons of other means and avenues for you to start multiple companies now. 
Like, there's no reason that this one idea has to be this one idea. I have to figure out how to take these five ideas and make them one. It might be taking steps on all five of them or picking three of them and, and taking steps in those areas. Um, there's no kind of, there's no right or wrong answer, but I think it's getting more and more flexible how you, how you become an entrepreneur or how you express that entrepreneurial itch in your career. It's interesting that you brought up the phrase multipreneur because that's something that I've been thinking about and kind of seeing more and more recently, specifically on Twitter. And I think it is something that I even, I've kind of been aspiring to more so than historically where like when I was younger, it was all about, I'm going to raise, you know, series A, B, C, like go for it, kind of shoot for the stars IPO. And, and now when I kind of think about what my entrepreneurial journey might become, it looks a little bit more like a portfolio of small bets, or I like how you put it with income stacking and it's definitely a trend that I have my eye on. So I think it is important to be listening to this and understand that there's not, there's so much flexibility in what it might look like to start a company and it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have like this one big idea and raise a big round for it. And so even the fact that you kind of are someone that has this portfolio of things that could be is inspiring for me. Oh, yeah, totally. I think that's directionally where the world is heading. Um, companies are going to stay smaller and people are going to start more companies at a time. Uh, it just kind of seems inevitable with the number of entrepreneurs that are coming into the market and the amount of tooling and ways that you can keep your team or your operation really, really small and lightweight. Um, I don't think that there's a shortage of ideas and I don't think that people who have the entrepreneurial itch tend to be people who just have one idea. They usually don't. It just feels like you have to pick one and, and that's, and that's the move. I do think that having a focus can be helpful. You don't want to like spread yourself thin or create stress. And there's a balance that exists there for sure. Um, but if you're a creative person that's ambitious and has that entrepreneurial itch and it's, and it's energy, um, it's energy generating for you, then I would not limit it and think of it as I must funnel it down to this one idea. And it has to be this one really big idea. I think that's a dated way of thinking for sure. And it can be really limiting and put pressure around this thing. I have to figure out the idea before I leave my job or before I even think of myself as an entrepreneur. I also love the idea that as designers, we know that we're going to create an awesome product. Like we know that it's going to be beautiful. We know that it's going to be a good user experience. That isn't the thing that we have to T-risk. And there's like an old adage that I kind of like where it basically talks about how first-time founders obsess over product, but second-time founders obsess over distribution. And mm -hmm. looking at kind of your journey along the way, like you started with a Slack group. The thing that you were worrying about was the steps to make sure that you had that atomic network that could sustain the business. And I definitely see that as a key takeaway of this discussion as well. Cool. Yeah, I've seen that quote as well, and I think it's very true. Um, you have to have a little bit of constraint there and well, it depends on what you're building, but I do think, I do think having that constraint and knowing, being patient with the fact that like, you know, you're a good designer and a good product person that you're going to have a bomb product. It doesn't have to happen today. <laughs> it needs to have it. You need to, 
be thinking about the users and thinking about what do they really need? What do they actually need in order for this to serve enough of the purpose that you can really prove out that this is like, this is something they would use, this is something they would pay for, whatever that kind of question around it is that you have in your head. Um, and design can be a part of that. I mean, we put the landing page we put up was like a cool landing page, right? Like I didn't put up some, you know, basic, <laughs> basic landing page, but it was extremely simple. And obviously the product on the inside was basically a, a non-product. It was a true MVP. So yeah, there's a, there's a bunch of different ways to, to think about it. And um, that's kind of one, one of the areas I'm really, really excited about in running this course is to like really talk with the group that's joining about where they're at in their different ideas and actually kind of workshop like what are the goals that you actually have in terms of, you know, I want to figure out if this is something that I could just leave my job and this just makes enough money for me that I'm good. Oh, okay. That's like, let's figure out like the things, the gates or the things that you can check to, to see if that's actually viable. Oh, like I, I just want to be able to work on like a bunch of different things that I like. Oh, okay, cool. It's like different. It's, it's just all different paths. But I think that thinking through that lens versus getting really into the like, design product, like I want to design something like Epic that all the other designers love, which is very tempting, um, is not actually going to solve for what you actually like need it to, to solve for. What about the topic of co-founders? How do you think about whether or not a co-founder is necessary versus doing something on your own? And maybe you could even share a little bit of advice based off of You've, you've found a co-founder named Michael. What did that look like? And for someone that maybe doesn't have that network, what do you recommend them doing? My experience in building Huddle with a co-founder is that it is essential to some degree. I think there's a certain point in company building where not having a person that's like as deeply like skin in the game as you, I would imagine that it would get really tough. And I've, I've sort of gone out and done my own things on the side and never, I think that the, there's, a, there's a point where accountability kicks in and it's like, it tends to be at these really tough points where you're kind of like, uh, the kind of shininess of this idea is a little bit dull and like, it's not really working as well as it was, or I thought it was going to, it was going like this and now it's kind of like this. And I think that accountability partner is extremely important. It, what it is for me, um, finding that person is really tricky though, because it is a very ingrained, you know, relationship. You hear this everywhere. It's like marriage. I think that that is true. You do like talk as much as you do to your significant other. And in my case, you know, I, I actually met Mike in one of my first jobs ever. He hired me. And so we've just like known each other many, many years. We worked in a few different companies together even and have collaborated on side projects together. So if you have someone in your life like that, that you have that rapport with for a number of years, even like different types of work environments. I think that's ideal, of course, because you have you have the communication 
you have some of those things that like trying to get those up and running while you're also building a company together and bumping into hard things together is I think pretty challenging. So if you have someone that you've worked with before, great. Um, I definitely would advise, you know, someone that has complementary skill sets to you. So Mike, my co-founder is very much, he comes from a finance background. He's uh, very operational minded. And so he really runs finance ops and um, in our sales org at Huddle. So it's very much like left and right brain. And then I kind of run up our kind of overall product and experience side. And we both just kind of hold the shared vision of the thing. And so it doesn't feel like there's parts of what he does that I wish I was doing or vice versa. It feels really even and balanced. What I would recommend is just starting to work with someone in some capacity that has those complementary skill sets and see if that rapport builds. So I actually originally joined Huddle as an advisor. It wasn't called Huddle. It was like a kind of earlier idea that my co-founder Mike was working on. And I joined as a design advisor. And in the process of advising him on that company, it kind of like ended up evolving into what Huddle is now today. And around during that evolution of working together for three or four months is when we both kind of realized that like, oh, we should just fully join forces on this and like go in on it together as co-founders. And so it happened really organically that way. But I think it can happen organically for anybody The best thing to always do is to start working with someone before you ink an agreement (laughs) that says that you have this, you know, these shares of this company or whatever. Um, Start working with someone, you know, at least three months, ideally more. And if it's just working and it's and and it feels good, then, you know, take that take that leap together but definitely make sure if it's someone that you don't know as well to really invest in the communication part, like honest feedback all the time, very open communication. There's too much that goes into building a company with somebody that if you're holding things that you wish that they were doing or that you think that they don't get the vision or something like that, it's like, it's too much to hold on to. So that's, those are my two advice is just start, you know, start working with them beforehand on something real, like actually have them helping you build it. And then um, if you do want to invest in that relationship, uh, like really, really invest in the communication and make sure they're on board to invest in the communication as well. I like the idea of working on it ahead of time because it is hard to spin up that kind of a working relationship if you are not actively contributing to whatever it is that you are building. And so even just this idea of putting yourself out there a little bit, sharing the fact that you are working on this thing, sharing concepts here and there, not being you know afraid of someone stealing your idea and doing everything you can to be a magnet for people who are like-minded, who are also interested in the same things. I think that's really important. So well said. Same thing applies with investors and with teammates is the more authentic that you are, the more authentically they can either enroll in that or not. Um, And so you're more likely to end up with people that are really aligned with what you're trying to do. I have a couple more questions for you. You mentioned that building Huddle is by far the most creatively fulfilling work of your career. 
And I think it's really cool to hear that, especially because you're not doing everyday, all day design, like maybe you have in other elements, like maybe you have in other uh, time frames within your career. And so I'm wondering if you can just unpack that a little bit for us. Yeah, for sure. It's one of the most frequent questions I get from designers. And the fact is I do get to design still. I get to design in a lot of different areas. I get to design in brand. I get to design in product a bit. I get to design lots of odds and ends and things. Huddle is the most creative endeavor that I've I've done because I think it goes back to what we were chatting about in the beginning, which is that like designer, creative problem solver desire to really like pick the problem that you care about and like really own solving it and not be like a part of solving it, but really like get to own how it gets solved and, and getting to own the output of that if it gets solved well. So knowing that every hour that I put in and create and figure out and every problem that I solve inside of Huddle is something that's going to output something that I actually am a part of gathering. <laughs> it's not going up into the corporate who knows where or part of this larger company brand image. It's actually directly tied to my image is really, really exciting. It's the upside part of you know, starting a company. But I think it applies to the creative side too. It, cre it creates an energy around like really owning the creative process of what you're doing. Um, and so, yeah, it's just way more fulfilling. I love that lens. And for people who are listening who maybe have a little bit of a desire to start something or maybe you're just like curious or have some kind of an idea and they're looking for the next couple steps, Steph's hinted at it a couple times. She actually is working on a course. And so maybe Steph, can you give us a bit of a background around who's it for and maybe what people can expect to get out of this program? For sure. I'm very, very excited about it. Um, we talked about this. The next sort of wave of ambitious designers already has a seat at the table at the company they're at. They're now thinking about, okay, I want to start my own company. I want to tackle the problems that I care about. And I'm incredibly excited about this, this cohort of designers in the world. I created a three week sprint slash course where I'm gonna just do an actual hands-on guidance of how to actually do this, how to actually explore. First off, leaning into your skills as a designer. What do you actually, what do you feel like you're great at and what do you enjoy the most? You're learning new things that you like, but it, the first part of the course is really thinking about, you know, how to leverage your skills as a designer, why designers make good founders, and also like, who you are in your own kind of personal place in that. And then the next phase is really tactically about evaluating ideas. If you are working on a side project, I'm sure many of you listening are, uh, or you just like have an idea that's been in your head for a long time and you don't know how to even like kind of start to take those steps at pursuing it. Or you might be like already pursuing it and you're kind of just getting started and you're not really sure what next steps to take, or you might be even thinking about the fundraising route. Um, and so we kind of cover a bunch of areas of validating your idea and figuring out if it's the idea that 
is going to meet your own personal goals with being an entrepreneur or setting out on this entrepreneurial journey. Um, and then the last part is like really tactical. We're going to go in much deeper into complementary skill sets and finding the right teammates to have around you. And then the last part is actually fundraising. And even if you're not in the camp of thinking that your idea is something that you want to go out and raise money for, it can be a really interesting exploration to actually kind of analyze whether the idea you have could be and whether it's interesting to. And if, of course, if you're interested in going down that route of fundraising like I did at Huddle, there's a ton of guidance around, you know, taking that journey and starting that. And the coolest thing I think about the whole thing, in my opinion, is this group of designers that come together, I'm just like so curious to meet all of them and like to start their entrepreneurial journeys like together. There's going to be kind of a micro community of these design entrepreneurs that are all kind of figuring out their ideas all together at the same time and, and can support each other within that three week course, but also beyond that. Um, so really, really excited about, about that piece. Amazing. Well, I'm excited as well, Steph. Thanks for hopping <laughs> on and I'm looking forward to you inspiring a whole new wave of new design founders.